Hello, I'm Derek Duncan, and welcome to the warm confines of the salon, where golf course builder Jim Urbina and I have in-depth and usually jovial conversations with our peers in golf and the world of golf course architecture. We've got a special conversation for you today with a man who needs no introduction other than to say his name, Ben Crenshaw. Crenshaw joined with Bill Coor in 1985 at a time when Crenshaw's fame was at its height, coming off his landmark 1984 Masters win, while Coor was a relatively obscure regional designer working at a club in Texas and searching for new projects. To give you just one indication of why Ben Crenshaw is so universally loved and admired in golf, when he was first asked what the name of the new firm should be, he responded, it's Core Crenshaw. In other words, one of the most famous men in golf insisted that the name of his partner, who was unknown to everyone not deeply entrenched in the world of design and construction, go ahead of his on the masthead. Name another PGA Tour player who'd do that. Ben's going to share his ideas on design and reminiscences about their long collaboration that has brought into existence some of the world's greatest modern courses like Sand Hills, Friars Head, Bandon Trails, Old Sandwich, and most recently Cabot St. Lucia, MacArthur's Back Porch, Brambles, and Wicker Point. They currently have courses in the Bahamas and Montana under construction and may begin at Rodeo Dunes in Colorado in early 2024. Before we get to that talk, I'd like to ask you to consider washing your laundry in cold water. This is not a joke. Modern detergents are marvelous things that can remove stains and odors without needing high temperatures, so your clothes come out just as clean, and in the process, you'll save money long-term and also help conserve valuable natural resources. Please go to your favorite podcast provider and give Feed the Ball a five-star review and leave some comments about the show as well. And you can download all past episodes of the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or at feedtheball.com for free, including episodes with Bill Coor. We're going to start the discussion with Ben Crenshaw, but first, Jim has a quote he'd like to read. You know, Derek, a lot of the times I think about, and when people ask me, you know, what's the yardage? What's the scorecard say? What's the hole measure? And I think that the golf hole is more than categorizing it as a yardage and defining it as a par, par three, par four, par five, you know, 550, 125, short par three. And I think it's more than that. And if you don't mind, I'd like to read this quote from Weatherden Simpson. And I think it really talks about what Weatherden Simpson saw and how they defined architecture. So if you don't mind. I'd like to hear it. And I quote, to keep a man continually asking how far is it is to make the game at once more difficult for him than by any other method. If, on the other hand, you simply supply him with a belt of clearly defined bunkers leading to the green, opening up the passage, he sees precisely what he has to do without the trouble of further thought, end quote. And to me, this quote speaks highly of how we as architects have to or think about steering golfers around a golf course target bunkers, surrounding a green with bunkers on left and right. And whether than simply Simpson simply say, you have made it easier by, de- by defining the golf course, the golf hole with bunkers. So to me, more bunkers doesn't make it better. Less is better. 
And you want them to have thought and not be guided around the golf course. And I think a lot of modern designs do that. I don't know how you feel about it. Well, first, it kind of reminds me of a of a lyric uh, from Jethro Tull, Thick as a Brick. I think it goes, <laughs> I might make you feel, but I can't make you think. In golf, you that's the trick, isn't it? To how do you make a player think? That, that, that quote you read is exactly that. Like so much of architecture, the majority of architecture, American architecture in particular, is paint by the numbers. You know, you have a, a bunker, you know, there's a dog leg set up with a bunker on the inside. So you know where exactly where to hit it to avoid the bunker. And then you have a, you know, and you, so you know it's, it's walking you through the shots. And a lot of architects over the years have looked at that as some kind of as, as an ideal they're setting up specific shots that you're supposed to hit and there's value to that if you like that if i suppose if you're a good player and you like that type of golf you want to pass that test uh, there's a correct answer and an incorrect answer and you want to add up how many how many correct answers you get through the course of a round but exactly. that's not making a player think right isn't that you're, it's a becomes a matter of, of execution which is part of golf we have to execute shots to play well and to, and to be satisfied but it it's much more interesting, and I know you agree to be out there on a on a place where the where you aren't you don't know what the the answer is, and you don't even know what the question is sometimes, and you have to kind of explore. And there's 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 a kind of a freedom to play different different ways and different routes towards success because because it isn't explicitly laid out. I'd be curious to ask you, how do you as a designer? What are some some things that you can do to try to make that player think? Because I think thinking on the tee and having to make decisions and being a little flummoxed about what type of shot to hit or or where to play to is uh, is correlated to golf courses that we find to be the most stimulating. I think that when I think of Lynxlands golf uh, uh, on the coast of Ireland or Scotland and, right. and Dunes, I think of. Uh, I'm not steered around the golf course. I'm not, as you say, paint by the numbers. Great, great, (laughs) great idea about how some people think about it. And I want to have the chance to play left to the middle or to the right if so desired and not have to be corridored into a narrow fairway uh, with bunkers on left and right. And that's what I always loved about St. Andrews. And I said this a thousand times is that the bunkering at St. Andrews is so random. It it doesn't force you to play one way or the other, but when you play one way away from a bunker, so to speak, that you must contend with another obstacle on your second and third shot sometimes. And so I like the creativity of the tee shot, of being able to go wherever you think it seems the right way to go. And if I don't figure it out that time, I come back and do it again. But like you said, when you paint by numbers, you simply paint the number, you paint the color, and then you're done. And you're not satisfied, in my opinion. It's a paint by numbers, not very satisfying. But as you said, you obtain the goal. You finished. And a record amount of time, or in the case of par, uh, two under par, or even, even par. And to me, that's boring. To me, discovering the landscape discovering a way the right and wrong way to go is way more entertaining for me and i hope i hope that golfers can see both ways Derek, because some golfers like that paint my numbers and some people want to discover i'm more of a discover kind of guy 
Jim, what you just said reminds me of of the the new Lido course uh, at Sand Valley that that was reconstructed, and it's based on you know the original Lido. It's supposed to be purported to be uh, an exact rebuild as close as possible to what CB McDonald built. And what is so fascinating about playing it is is exactly what you just described. There is one way, probably an optimal way, to play each hole uh, if you can hit a certain spot, and depending on the conditions. But the course becomes infinitely more interesting the more wayward you play. It's almost like the more the bigger mistake you make or the wider that you go because there's so much width. It you see something completely different. It gives you the opportunity to to play a different shot or recover or see a different aspect of the course when you're hitting it wild. You might try to play it almost every day, play most of the holes the same way, uh, and it. Pin position makes a big difference too, but if you oh, start sure. if you start slicing it or duck hooking it, you'll be in the fairway, and all of a sudden you see a completely new way to play the hole that might be the, a better way depending on where the pin is or or uh, the the conditions of that day or your abilities. Whether you you might be able to skip a ball into a green where you couldn't from the other position when you're trying to you know anticipate playing a lofted shot into it. So that ideal in golf that CB McDonald captured. At Lido and the, the Nationals like that to some degree too is so fascinating. It, it allows the 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 great player to to go on his game and he gets the same thing out of it as a paint by numbers course because there are these these markings that you can tack toward and, and attack the course, but it lets you and me play it our game and gives us the chance to discover something that that we wouldn't ordinarily see on any other course. You're you know, you're in the winds, you're, you're looking for your golf ball, you're in a lake. <laughs> Whereas at, at, at these old courses, the Lynx courses are like that. You have an opportunity to play the golf hole in a multiple of different ways. And Agreed. it's, you know, we've got so many more courses now built over the last 20 years. Uh, Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw have built many of them that allow for uh, for freedom of play that don't tell you how to play the golf course. Uh, one of the best ways that I can think of, and you mentioned that setting up things off the tee shot, is the use of of center line hazards off the tee. It infuriates golfers. It's you know you put a bunker right where they were trying. They they've spent thousands of dollars taking lessons to hit their driver straight, and they, then now you're going to put a bunker right where they've been trying to hit this drive their whole life. But what does it do? It makes them have to calculate. And they're not used to it. Most most golfers are not used to it. But the more you see that, the more they have to grind through it. And do they play short? Do they try to squeeze one left, squeeze one right, play over? Now you're making them grind on the tee, which is the ideal. And centerline bunkers, I think, is the one thing that, that a lot of great courses have uh, and a lot of uh, great architects use to create that interest and to create that thought process. Don't disagree. And uh, old McDonald at the Bandon Dunes Resort right. does the yep. same thing. Yep. It's so big and wide that you can discover the route that you want to make it. But I will tell you, Matt, that I learned something recently about a month ago. I uh, was talking with a, a, a gentleman who has seen thousands of golf courses. And he said the reason that he doesn't like Old McDonald, it's not one of its favorites, is because it's too big. And he doesn't know he doesn't feel comfortable standing on the tee and hitting that shot because he's not directed in the in the line that he should go. 
And I said, what's wrong with that? And he said, there's nothing wrong with it. It just doesn't feel comfortable to me. So old McDonald, the National Golf Links of America, those big, wide links golf courses that allow you to discover, just as you said, allow you to discover and attack uh, the, the green, the next shot in any way you choose. I love them. And I understand why some people don't. But for me, it's the discovery. It never gets boring. It never gets old. And to play a golf course with 90-foot fairways and bunkers left and right would be predictable and not for a member or an average golfer, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, you just said you said it right there. And I think there's a contingent of golfers who, who that, whether they can um, summarize it as succinctly as you just did that's what makes golf appealing to them and that's what they're seeking is that variety that variability that day-to-day variability where you can go out and and we all have a different swing on every day uh most of us do uh and to be able to to not have to play the same shots the same way every day because the architecture dictates that's how you have to play it you know, so okay. many so many architects have have figured out the mathematics of design. You know, they they know that the bunkers go out at, at you know it used to be two fifty, then it was two eighty, and you know, and they right. know that, and they know the turn angles, and they know the the the, the corridors, and they know the hole lengths, and they they know to 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 balance the par threes and different lengths, and blah blah blah. That's all the, those. That's the <laughs> mathematics of design. But the, the great architects of the day. Don't worry about the mathematics. And I think that kind of goes back to that quote that you let us off with. It, it's not about how far. It, it's not about uh, guiding the player through. It's about creating an environment to play golf in where it's not going to be the same every time you you play it. And and you can't do that when you're, when you're thinking about mathematics. And sadly, the scorecard is about mathematics. The slope and distance, the USGA ratings are all about mathematics. And I just wished that you and I could go out and play a game and not worry about all of those things, tee it up and realize that we could have a match, that we could play a game and not have to let mathematics ruin our day. And I'm not saying that it's wrong. I'm just saying it's not for everybody. And the, the variety is the spice of life. And that's how I lean. And that's what I get out of a lot of architecture books, whether than Simpson. It's more about the thought than about the strength. You mentioned that, not to dwell too deeply on it, because we could probably set aside a you know, whole segment on this, but USGA course rating and slope is confining to architects. That is a, a an obstacle in, in many cases to creative design because when you have to be able to set up a golf course with tees at certain spots to put those numbers on a scorecard so people can play to their register a handicap and have those matches that you're talking about at least according to the way that USGA has set it up, it, it limits the possibilities of how you can not only design a course but how how it can be set up in the future. You have to take these things into account where. If and nobody, I know nobody. I realize that that this is not popular, and this is maybe defeating in some ways when we're talking about match play. But it would be liberating if people didn't care about their handicaps and and didn't care about <laughs> registering a score and didn't know need to know like what their index was. Uh, I, I get it. I get it. That's how we 
that's how that's how you and I and somebody else can have a fair match. But maybe there's another way to do it. Maybe there's another way we could we could agree on some other thing rather than saying, well, this is the this is the ninth handicapped hole, and it's we know it's that way because the tees are placed at this distance. You know, as you said, it's it's ninety percent based on how long holes are is is how the the handicaps are measured. But it's it's limiting, isn't it, to be able to ha- to have to consider those things rather than just consider how do I make this golf course as as entertaining as possible. And for me. And for members and for uh, uh, what uh, Mike Kaiser calls the retail golfer, they want an experience, whether it's shooting the best score they've ever shot or beating their friend in a match or uh, or uh, getting two or three birdies that they've never had. I get all of that. I understand all of that. And that's the hole in one, uh, the, you know, I just, I just eagled that par five or I just birdied that long par four. Those are monuments and milestones that you try to achieve to say to yourself, you know, I'm getting better. But I also want you to think about as an architect and I, when I design golf courses, I want you to think about not only did I get better, I got smarter. And when I got smarter, I got I realized that I could play this hole in a different way. And to me, to me, that's has as much value as having a better score. You got to be smarter and you got to think more and you got to enjoy the round more. And there is a success in my mind in that. I think we all and uh, and you as an architect have a a little bit of a debt of gratitude to, to pay to Bill Core and Ben Crenshaw because they pioneered that way of thinking a long time ago. They were there pretty much before anybody else in the contemporary era were. And and just a simple thing like paying so much attention to the ground in front of the green. How does a ball react to these contours that, that we're either accentuating or adding, helping players hit a low shot if they want to? Whereas the architecture that had come for 50 years prior to that only considered where the ball was going to land on the green once you carried it that far and often over bunkers or water. Uh, and we'll, we can, we can talk to Ben about this and find out like where those, these ideas came from. And, um, and it started at, you know, Sand Hills was such a shot in the dark at the time that it was built. And, you know, people have been skipping balls along the ground forever. We've all, we, everybody top shots, you know, with the exception of the, you know, the 1%, but architecture for in, in the era that we came up and our fathers came up, it it didn't, those, those were bad misses (laughs) and you can go play courses that Bill and Ben designed and, and others too, but, but you can, you can cold, cold top skull a shot and it, it can still roll up and get on the green you know just as if you intended to play it that ways um and that's just another and, and the next day you might flush the shot and it might carry onto the green just like you envisioned but you have that playability you have that variability the course will play differently every day and and that's something that has always been in the mindset of of bill and ben and we, we can talk to ben and and find out his you know for a tour player to have that mentality is just is is kind of unheard of to me no. unheard of unheard yeah. and i would like to because i think kapalua is all about that yes uh, the golf course they did in hawaii it's all about the ground game playing the kicker off the hillside or or uh, hitting a feature that allows them to get a role and an advancement i love kapalua 
uh, I love uh, the sand hills. I love the golf courses, the sheep ranches, and the, uh, I've seen them all. I have not seen St. Lucia. I want to go see that. Uh, you've had the chance to see it. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I love all of what the architecture that they spill out that allows both types of games, Derek, the aerial and the ground. And uh, I look forward to talking to Ben about that. And what tour player thinks about, you know, if I just hit this ball on the ground, I'm going to get a lot closer than in the air. I think maybe only Ben. Correct me if I'm wrong. I can't think of anybody, certainly not playing an American course, but <laughs> they've created a lot of a lot of goodwill and a lot of good memories for golfers all over the country, all over the world, because of they uh, allow that style of golf Agreed. and Agreed. ushered in that that era. Um, you know, this is going to be fun to talk to Ben. He's he's been doing this for a long time. He's been around the world and back. He's one of the. I don't need to tell our listeners this. Just one of the the legendary figures in golf for all of the things that he's contributed, all the things that he's done, both as a player and as an architect and as a human being, he is in, almost in a class by himself. So this is going to be fun. I'm really looking forward to talking to Ben Crenshaw, Jim. Uh, I more than you. Well, I more than you. Then let's, let's not waste any more time. I agree. Let's go. <laughs> let's do this. It's Ben Crenshaw. <laughs> Thank you. Well, it, it's quite spectacular, and you know we we uh, certainly really in the first place we wanted to thank the powers that be in St. Lucia to let us build it uh, on on terrain like that, and you know there's not there's been instances where in somewhere in the world that you're not allowed to to build a golf course upon it, so we thank them profusely they embraced it and obviously we're very happy about that but it, it is it's it's spectacular and with that many holes on the water well i can i can tell you ben i have not seen it yet but if you don't mind can i share a story with the listeners how i first met you at sandhills do you mind no fine jim so to the listeners out there um, I had driven from Denver, Colorado to the Sand Hills of Nebraska with one sole mission to meet Bill Coor. And <laughs> I drove out there, Derek, and I was on a I was on a mission. And so I pulled up and this scruffy old guy named Dick Youngscap says, Well, I don't know where they're at. They're out there somewhere. <laughs> Dick Youngscap being the the uh, founder of the Sand Hills. And so I finally found two guys out on the 14th hole. I don't know if Ben remembers this. And I walked up to Ben, not knowing anything. And I said, uh, sir, I'm looking for Bill Coor. <laughs> and and uh, Ben said to me, he said, he's over there on the 14th green. He's probably moved about a quarter of an inch of sand in the last two hours. So if you want to go for a walk with me, that would be okay. <laughs> and I didn't know who Ben Crenshaw was there. And Ben was so gracious to me to say, you know, he's going to be busy for a while. Why don't you go spend time with me? 
<laughs> and I thought, well, who is this guy? He's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> and so 35 well, you were, years you were later. For the right man and Bill Coor, I tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> I knew you would say that, but I just wanted the <laughs> listeners to know how gracious Ben was that day. My mission was to meet Bill Coor. Who cares about Ben Crenshaw? <laughs> ben, at that moment in time, that specific moment, Jim Urbina was the only person in the world of golf who knew who Bill Coor was and not you. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you don't mind. And I know it's come a long way. But how did you, if you don't mind me asking, how did you and Bill find each other? Well, Jim, you, you won't believe this. Um, you know, our old friend Rod Whitman, who you know so well, uh, who, you know, is a Canadian. He's from Alberta. And uh, way long ago, Bill Coor was asked by Pete Dye uh, to do a, a work on a golf course with his brother, Roy Dye on uh, Waterwood National in East Texas. And Rod Whitman uh, happened to be on that crew, and he, he was going to Sam Houston State uh, playing golf. And uh, later on, uh, at Bill built a course at Rockport, Texas, and Rod was working on that crew, and he mentioned to me, one day he said, you know what? You need to meet my friend, Bill Coor. And uh, I had not met Bill before, but I had heard about him uh, through some other friends. And and Rod was the fellow who introduced uh, me to Bill. And uh, Bill, you know, I I went down back to Rockport and, and really liked what I saw uh, of the golf course. And I got to thinking, this is way back. This is, you know, before 1984. And Bill was, you know, had his own crew. He wasn't interested in joining up with anyone at all. And uh, I, I just kept seeing him and I kept working on him. And I said, you know, maybe maybe we can work together someday. And he kind of, he was re very reluctant at first. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and and uh, gradually he came around and he said, well, we'll try to give this a shot. And uh, we had a very, very slow start. You know, we had, we had ideas on, on, I think, two golf courses, and they never came to fruition. Uh, so we kept, uh, kept at it. And then uh, uh, I suppose Kapalua and Maui was our first course that we were really let loose on. But, you know, God, that was 30, 37, 38 years ago now. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And uh, we've – it's been it's been great. Uh, Bill is uh, – I, I owe a lot to Bill. I'm very devoted to him, and uh, we've, we've had a pretty happy uh, relationship. We've been allowed to do a lot of things that give us a lot of pleasure – um, and it's worked. It's worked very well. So very thankful for that. You know, a lot of people, Ben, don't realize you. We look at your career now and think of all the successes that you and Bill have had. But 
a lot of people don't realize that about five years went by after you two joined together where you didn't have anything. You had maybe some renovation projects, but you didn't build a new course for five years. No, that's, that's correct. And, uh, I think Ron Witten, uh, he was the fine, fine golf writer for golf digest. He got us together and he said, well, I'm supposed to write about you guys, but you, you don't have anything. <laughs> you don't have anything that's come to fruition yet. But anyway, we've, we persevered and, uh, uh, I, you know, I suppose about anything, you know, you just stay at it and we we're we're fortunate, uh, to, to have come to this, but when, you know, looking back, it was a little painful at, at first, we didn't know if we were ever going to get started. Uh, and Bill had gotten a little crew of his own, so he, you know, he had some permanency about what his uh, golf architect future was. But, uh, you know, we kept at it, and we've still got some of the same guys who right. worked for Bill in that period. Yeah. But, uh, you know, in Jim's case, uh, I miss seeing Jim because he's so talented, and I, I'm – it's 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 all it's always wonderful to talk shop with with some of the friends in the business and Jim is uh, he's done so well and he, and he's gotten a reputation of of doing things right uh, very patient about his work I and mean, he does very very good work and uh, it's by his reputation that that he is succeeding and I'm really happy to uh, to talk. Uh, about him and he's have you started at Positiempo yet Jim I did we started the fr front nine of Positiempo I, I kid people I always point to your picture in the Marianne Holland's house where you're standing in front of the McKenzie house pointing to it to let them know that's where Alistair McKenzie lived and believe me Ben <laughs> every time I spend time at Positiempo it scares the hell out of me I'll be honest with you because the history is so important there Alistair McKenzie is so important to architecture. And every time I touch that golf course, I touch it with all due respect. And uh, we will finish the back nine next year after the Western Collegian. So we'll have the front nine is now open and the back nine will start next year and open it in December of, of, of uh, 2024. I hope that you return and stand on the sixth hole and point at uh, McKenzie's house again to get a refresher of how cool that place is. Oh, no, I, I uh, you know, ironically, I was just at Cypress Point. I came back last night. We're uh, doing just such minor work there. Uh, but Hodge Tempo is vital to, to our, our architecture. You know it, and I, I really enjoy watching the collegians play that course uh, every year they and those greens keep them at bay doesn't matter how far you doesn't matter how far you hit the ball they've got to tackle those greens that's right and uh yeah mckinney's house on the sixth hole that's a it's a great reminder of things of how it was and what a happy existence that he had in his last few years yep um uh it's uh Marion Hollins, you know, people, it's, it's, it's amazing how little people know about her, especially Agreed. today's 
golfing. I mean, they they get into the the teeth of the story about her. <clears throat> she was <clears throat> very very vital in not only Pasadena and Cypress Point, but Augusta. Correct. Uh, she was she was Dr. McKenzie's uh, eyes and ears for for a little while because Dr. Agreed. McKenzie couldn't be there all the time. Agreed. He had uh, implicit trust in her. And uh, obviously she's a great player as well. Uh, <laughs> anybody who could hit brass on number 16 at Cypress Point just knocked right on the green and said, well, that's, that's where the green's going to be. Did you try that shot while you were there? <laughs> uh, you know what? I hit a driver. It was a little inclement <laughs> weather, and my driver did not make it. <laughs> <laughs> there you Positive go. Positive a ball into the sea. <laughs> See, they would have changed it to a par four if you would have been around. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've often wondered where that tee was, Jim. It's kind of right, it must have been right off the 15th green. Man, what a hole that that been. That had been a, a lot of days you probably couldn't get the fairway on a par four going going that far back. But uh, it's pretty good as par three now. <laughs> exactly. Can I say something? I, and it's no disrespect to Alistair McKenzie, but I think that Sand Hills changed architecture the way that Cypress Point and Pasha Temple for McKenzie changed architecture in that era. Did you know that Sand Hills was going to do what it did for the next era of golf design? Uh, no, Jim, we did not. I tell you, truthfully, we were we were just trying to get people out there to see it uh, because it was so remote. Uh, and it is remote now, but... I think, if anything, Jim, we're proud of the fact that he's given uh, ideas to to people to go out to a remote site, no, no matter where it is in the world. And it does, if you've got a good tour, people will go see it. Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, we had, in the first couple of years, you know, with Mr. Young's cap, we, we really were, we were hoping to get people out there to see it. And... Uh, I guess little by little, word spread, uh, and people took the journey to get there. Uh, I, you know, it's funny. Right, right now, I'm Royal Dornock is going to celebrate their 150th year as a club in a few years. I've been asked to write about it, and you know that is. For people to make that journey up to up way up north in Scotland, there's a remote place, and that's a remote place to get to. Agreed. But it just serves that if people go up there, they'd be really rewarded because it's the northernmost course, famous golf course in the world, but you have a journey to get there. And I tell people when I get to Royal Dornick, I can almost see Santa's slay because i'm that far north ben they don't believe me but you are way up there <laughs> it is it's way, way past inverness people a lot of people don't know where inverness is but it's up there yeah but uh, uh it's uh, that place is amazing they you know right up their back door is just unbelievable golf land 
uh, and they've been proud of it. You know, birthplace of Donald Ross uh, gave us so much in America. Jim and I were talking before uh, earlier this morning, uh, and and one of the things that I think uh, a lot of golfers have to thank you and Bill for is the ability to go play golf courses like a Sandhills if they can get there, or Bandon Dunes, or, or Sand Valley, or Cabot, and these types of places, uh, really anywhere that you've you've touched, is to be able to go and play golf course in different ways. You spent so much time thinking about the land in front of the greens and the spaciousness in the fairways. And what what was so radical about Sandhills among for many reasons and the course you've done since is that you introduced that that element to it which really didn't exist if you think about the architecture leading up to the to the mid 1990s everything emphasized an aerial game the turf the clubs the instruction what people saw on on tv every golf course that they played forced people to try to hit the ball in the air at certain distances where you get to sand hills and it was like how holy cow like you know these greens are open you can bounce the ball along the ground you can play under the wind that came naturally to you what what puts you especially from your pga tour playing background how did you arrive at, at having that kind of conception of of enabling golfers of all different skill levels to play a golf course of your design in a variety of different ways when it was not the common thing to do in architecture at that time well i suppose that's a little ironic but uh you know, my first uh, British Open was 1974 at Litham, and I'd, I'd never been there uh, over to England, Scotland. And then I started practicing it and and playing it. I had to qualify uh, to get in the tournament. We played another little golf course called St. Anne's Old Links. And, you know, I said, this is, this is unbelievable. This is like playing – in Texas, on a really windy day, and, and if we'd had drought conditions in Texas, you had to use the ground. Uh, so it was a little bit in in relation of what I had seen before as a youth playing in Texas, if things were firm and quick. And uh, so over there when you start studying courses there's every opportunity to use the ground and that's the way to get around and it also enables other handicapped golfers to get around as well and so you you just try to envision with the ground that you have at your disposal to try to envision getting people around and uh there's sufficient areas and you're so right uh an aerial game uh, constantly, it, it really only applies to really, really accomplished players. Um, so I'm not saying it cuts off uh, handicapped players, but it makes it a lot more difficult for them to get around. Uh, but uh, if so many of the courses in the British Isles are situated and, and kept such that you do have to use the ground. And to, so we try to keep that in mind always. And I know Jim thinks about it a lot too, because you, if you're exposed to different places and you learn from them, then, you know, you incorporate those, those principles in your designs. Uh, 
and it helps people. So uh, I suppose it's a little bit of what I what I had seen as a youth. So it, it's it has helped. Do you think that architecture with the aerial game, like tour events, do you think that those were a good or bad thing for the development of golf? Or should have everybody played in West Texas in the wind on on on, on dry ground and learn that game that way? Well, I, I think it, it only helps. It, it's what you what you experience, and what you're uh, allowed to see, and 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 allowed to to be feeling when you play golf. Um, you know, another thing too, Jim. What that does, it. Uh, I'm not saying it it places hardships on the superintendent, but it's up to the superintendent to prepare the ground. And maybe not water as much, let's say, <laughs> in, in a lot of situations. So um, uh, if you have a, a course that's been watered quite a lot, then, you know, there's only a few instances of what can happen to the ball. So uh, a good superintendent, you know, will water only just so much, uh, I think, as a general rule. And and sometimes a lot of a lot of clubs will not allow that to happen. Yeah. So it, I think uh, you know one of my favorite courses in the world. I'm sure it is used Royal Melbourne in, in Australia. The green keeping there has been the, the most remarkable thing, and a lot to learn because it, you know Melbourne has it fluctuates in temperatures so much. It can be cold. It can be hot. And I, I, it's just fascinating. Uh, and there was one guy named Claude Crockford who took care of that place forever. He, uh, the guy, he grew up uh, building bowling greens in, in, in Australia, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on really, really fine hardy turf. Yep. And uh, that guy was remarkable. I heard I heard stories about him that you just couldn't believe. He's hardly ever watered. <laughs> yeah, be a nice lesson to, for American greenkeepers to pick up on. I mean, they're well, paid. They're almost paid now for how much they water. <laughs> yeah, well, water water resources are. They keep saying it's. Uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I'm not saying it's to be scarce, but uh, it, it's health, healthy turf uh, to a lot of people in the greenkeeping. Healthy turf is hardy, hardy turf, and uh, it, it if you water too much, it puts it in a weakened condition. So therefore, a lot, a lot of times you can't get through certain droughts, uh, but. You know, I, I think greenkeeping and, and and good architecture around the world is definitely something to be studied all the time. Agreed. Uh, Agreed. It, it has to be scrutinized. And you and I both have shared the wonderful talents of Ken Nice at the Bandon Dunes Resort. How important is the superintendent to the architecture that we try to unveil to the to the average golfer. How important is Ken Nice and his crews at Bandon Dune 
to that, Ben. Well, let me tell you something. I, I, you, that guy is so talented, and, I, and people who have been there can imagine some of the weather that he has to put up with uh, in a lot of different conditions. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, it is uh, – it's so natural – and there's there's a difference, obviously, in all the courses there, but he has orchestrated some unbelievable crew to take care of the problems there, Agreed. and he, he makes it happen. And uh, you, uh, but uh, like you say, I think that he's one of the most unique uh, superintendents that we have in the business. Agreed. Uh, because he has to maintain it year round, has a lot of play. Uh, uh, you know, a lot of people coming there for uh, repeat businesses, and and uh, I think that he presents it uh, as well as anyone. Uh, I, you know, uh, in in Australia, they call greenkeepers uh, curators, curators like like a curator of a museum. Yes. And I think it's a nice term for them, but I, it's uh, Ken Nice is unbelievable. He's one of these guys that you just, you learn from all the time. And he's a, he's a can do guy. He, he's, I don't care what it is. He's going to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. It, it, he never says no. He just says, how can I figure it out to make it right? And, Ben, you know this as well as anybody. If the golf course superintendent doesn't buy into your architecture, it's going to be a long day and a long year and forever trying to fight that when you know if you're in the same team, you got it made. You're right. You're right, Jim. And there has to be, I think, in any new course or the first few meetings of who's going to take care of the course means so much, and they – they have to know you and you have to know them uh, to know what their capacities uh, can be. Yep. Um, and, uh, you know, you, I think you start immediately right at first, you ask about surrounding golf courses and uh, who are nearby and what, mm -hmm. what do they do? What works and what doesn't work. And so it's a, it's a, it's a knowing process at first. It does. And Derek, you know, you've talked about it many times. Uh, architecture is only limited to, to what, how it's presented to, to the rest of the people. Well, it is. And people pick up on those, uh, those ideas and the way it plays. And, uh, you know, you, you learn each day that you play, you learn you see different situations and it makes it makes you remind of other places that you've been in your travels and you say well now i understand why they're trying to do this and that i just it's all fascinating it's all always a learning process no matter how many times you've been to a place speaking of abandoned dunes ben it just occurs to me as we were talking that it, this is unique because you and bill actually remodeled one of Jim's courses there, Sheep Ranch, so to speak, in many ways. <laughs> you took some things that he built and changed them yeah. around. <laughs>
Well, we did, you know, largely it was fine. It was a great routing. And, and, uh, I, I don't know. There's certain situations, I guess, when you play the sheep ranch now, uh, and there are differences with, with the courses that are there. I mean, it's a different piece of ground. Very much so. Similar, similar ground. But, you know, the, I think the ideas and the way the greens are placed and the way it plays uh, is, is different with Jim's ideas. And uh, we, we, uh, we wanted to, to use as much as possible and just compound those ideas. And I think it's really interesting in that the courses are very close together, but all of them play differently. They're all different sort of the way they, the way they play. So uh, that's how varied the ground is, though. Can I ask you about the sheep ranch? And I know that you've, you've built a thousand greens, Ben. You've built a thousand greens. <laughs> but I watched you grind away on the 10th green at the sheep ranch. And you kept messing with the elevations and you kept messing with the approach and you kept messing with, and I say that uh, with loving care, messing <laughs> with, and you kept looking at the size of the pin placements. When you're on a green like that, man, and I watch you from afar, I sit on the hill and watch you. How do you know you have it right? And do you ever walk away saying, you know, I want to go back at it again? I, I, I think you do. I, you know, only through time and you know uh, you know if you ha if you if you just sat there on a chair and watched people play you say well I, we got if we have this contour right do we have enough space you know from side to side or or front to back how the contours work uh and some greens some greens are less of a problem than others. But, you know, if you have a, you know, you just try to imagine different wind directions, playability, uh, and you ask yourself, well, how are these people going to get there in that area right there? Is that too much for them or is it too little? Uh, the interconnecting humps have always fascinated me. Uh, I think there's, I don't think there's nothing else nothing worse in the world than just a dead flat green agreed <laughs> and although it works you know you have to be really careful in a in a place like the sheep ranch and at bandon because the conditions are can be rough yes so i mean sometimes you ask yourself well have we gone over the line here <laughs> <laughs> Ben, do you do you and Bill have naturally different uh, approaches to say green building? Does one of you have a tendency to maybe want to push the envelope a little bit more in general, and the other is a balancing act? How does that how does that correlation and collaboration work as far as your natural tendencies? Oh, I I think Bill loves the short game. Uh, and he knows how much people have to rely on a short game if, if there are certain handicapped. Uh, short game will always be important in everybody's game. It's the way you score. Uh, but I, there's a 
There's a point in, in talking about undulations and sometimes a little bit you can go. I think maybe some of our greens in the first parts of our career probably maybe were they're a little too undulating. Uh, I don't know why that is, but I've thought about it. Uh, and, 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 and it's, uh, I think it's an area where <laughs> it's like that. It's like that funny story that Jim told at the first bill loves to get on this little machine and go around and grade. He grades the greens, you know, when it gets down to be minute, he just loves going around that on that machine. He's so good at it. It's like giving it a final touch before the green is planted and he's very intricate with it. And he's so patient. Uh, uh, but uh, like Jim says, if you're looking for him, he'll be on that little tractor. Uh, <laughs> it's just amazing. I get dizzy watching him sometimes. <laughs> do you think, Ben, do you think the second green at Sand Hills is too undulating? Boy, that's it's close, really close, Jim. That's, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big front face. I'll tell you, Jim, what idea that I had in mind there when Bill and I were building it was the 14th green at Augusta. Wow, with this big ramp upwards, and we thought, well, this is a kind of, kind of a plateau here, and so we made a a, a ramp upwards uh, to that to the flat part, but. Four, I kept thinking about 14 at Augusta, which is really a tough green. Yep. Uh, and it's uh, it's worked all these years. And it's a different problem. There's no question about that. But that's certainly a plateau green. It can be tough. It can be tough. And if you're referring it, I've never heard that before, that you, you use the 14th at Augusta. Uh, you must like Perry Maxwell. I, I really think that he was I've, – I've heard it said many times, he built some of the most interesting greens of any architect. You know, Dr. McKenzie was always known as some of the most sloping greens that have come out as he was building them. But I think it's pretty ironic, too, that he actually worked for Dr. McKenzie. Perry Maxwell did. Uh, they were very – they were in kinship with a lot of ideas – God, I still think about those greens at Prairie Dunes, and I just, they're just some of the best greens I've ever seen. And I think that's Bill Coors case as well. That, uh, it's a particular hole in Prairie Dunes is number eight. I could just look at that whole golf hole all day. It's just an unbelievable gem of a hole. The fairway, the tee shot. And upwards to that green. That green is a high green, but it is fascinating green. Yep, I agree. Eighth, the eighth hole, the seventh hole, you nailed it on the. I mean, it's just I the shoot. The pro used to always ask me, Ben, why do you keep coming back here? <laughs> <laughs> he says you never asked to play. You just want to go look around because I was fascinated the same way you were about the greens. And that's why I, I, I search out Coor and Crenshaw greens because I see that same Perry Maxwell look. And I'm not saying that you're you, that you were that you draw inspiration from them all the time, but the the love affair of the eighth hole, the seventh green at Prairie Dunes, same as you, Ben. Absolutely love them. 
Well, that is, I, I think, you know, you could, they're so good. You can just stare at them for a long time and you, you say, God, I would give anything to build something like that. Uh, and, and we're, you know, we're not in that class. The 17th green as well, the par five green up on top. That's an unbelievable green. But uh, those, are, you know, ironically, I grew up on a Perry Maxwell golf course. The old Austin Country Club was a Perry Maxwell course. That's right. And I still think about some of those undulations that were there. Uh, the undulations are not there anymore, but, you know, the courses still exist. But, uh, wow, I mean, they had some great greens back then. Was he more of an influence for you than McKenzie or any of the other Golden Age designs, Perry Maxwell? Well, well, I, I you know, you get, you always go back back to your youth and how you played the game and when you started playing seriously. But uh, you know, there's no question they were fresh on my mind. The green size, green undulations, and this and that. Yeah. Um. So, but the guy was just unbelievable. Uh, wherever he went, uh, people still talk about them. You know, Bill, in his case, uh, Bill going to, went to Wake Forest, and, you know, the Wake Forest golf team is Old Town, which is Perry Maxwell course, and they had some great greens too. I'm sure that sticks out in Bill's mind. Yeah. yeah. How ironic that both of you uh, were schooled on Perry Maxwell greens uh, and routings and bunkering, uh, yet you still have your own style and feature from Kapalua to Sand Hills to, uh, to Tahoe to everywhere I've gone. Uh, unbelievable greens. Uh, is that the hallmark of Coor and Crenshaw? Greens or is well, it more than that? Well, I think it's, it's uh, greens are vital, uh, but no question, Jim, the layout is, is uh, and routing. I, I still think Bill is one of the best routers I've ever seen. He can he can look at a piece of property, and it's it, he can assess its uh, values pretty quickly, uh, but very very natural, very different. Um, you know, one of the great lines that that I that I ever read, you know, amongst all the books that you and I have 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 read, Jim, was about that about a layout. He said, a golf hole must be there, not brought there. I think that's one of the great lines I've ever heard because, uh, in other words, it's not manufactured. It's a natural hole. A golf, a golf, golf hole or a golf course must be there, not brought there, which is just brilliant. Well, that's, that's kind of guided your – whole career hasn't it been i mean i th i always thought the key to the success that you and bill have had aside from your talent aside from your good looks is is the wow. fact that 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 so often you walked away from potential jobs you said this isn't right for us this piece of land isn't speaking to us we don't see a, a we don't see golf holes here and you waited until you were able to find those pieces of land where you where you did see those golf holes yeah, and we well, and that's we do tend to gravitate toward that, but we do know that there's so many great people in the industry who can 
really work on a site and, and, you know, pound it in and pound it in and, and get it looking right. But that's tough. It's really tough, but we've got great people in our business who can take an inferior piece of ground and make it look pretty darn good. That's just not what we prefer. That's, that's basically what that is. Uh, but no question. We, if we consider a job, the, the land's got to come first and then the people involved and uh, how, uh, how a course is run or how a club is formed. But so, so we obviously enjoy the surroundings, but it's always the land first for us and what we think we can do. And if Dick Young's cap hadn't come across that piece of sand hills in Nebraska, uh, could you have still put up with Dick Young's cap in the middle of cornfield in Kansas? <laughs> I tell you what, he's one of the most unique individuals that we've ever met. I tell you what, he was so much fun uh, to work with, and he has he has his convictions. I can tell you that, and uh, he he was a couple of times he he he'd be upset with us. I'll never forget this though. We, on that matter of fact, Jim, on you mentioned the 14th hole, the par five, it goes out to the property line. Yeah. And yeah. Bill, Bill and I, you know, we're out there. We hadn't built anything yet. And we kept coming back to Dick and he said, Dick, uh, that 14th, 14th hole out there, you think that we can, we could, uh, move that green just beyond the fence. And he said, you got to be kidding me. We've got 8,000 acres out here. And we can't fit the course in. <laughs> he was upset with us for a while. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, remember, he told me they're out there playing in this. <laughs> he didn't want anything to do with you guys. <laughs> I know. he. Yeah, I think he think we thought we were half crazy, and we are. There's no question about that. So. You said you said, well, that's where the hole is. It's right, it's yeah, right on the other side of the fence. Well, that's, that's right. It works. It's a par five green. We need a par five green. <laughs> <laughs> oh that, man! That brings me to the question: How important are the Dick Youngs caps and the Mike Kaisers and the Marion Hollands of the world for golf course architecture? Well, you're right. Um, they're they, they're uh, singular people in knowing what they want, and they're they're great at it. They don't let ideas go, uh, and they uh, they'll certainly fight for what they think is right, uh, and they have a lot of conviction about them. And we're, you know, in all all those cases, where all you can do is learn. Jim, you say you ask yourself, well, why, why did they do? Why, why, why did they feel so strongly about this? You know, that's you can only learn from from people like that. They're vital to our business, as you know. Vital, vital. Yeah, and instead of thinking about how many houses I could put on the golf course, with no disrespect, Ben, no disrespect, well, <laughs> they're thinking about how can I find the best land to let these guys go make what they do best. Well, you're right, and it takes a certain amount of uh, uh, restraint, you know, in their in their quest to have a club and make it successful. Uh, you know, the economics of a place 
has to work. There's no question how you do that. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly not opposed to real estate and I, you're, you're not either. Nope. Cypress Point has ways that can make it work though. I mean, yeah. the over in Scotland, uh, you know, it has never worked over there. They don't really believe in it, but that's not their, that's, they're not, it's not their goal, but they make do with what little finances they, that they're bringing in. And I tell people all the time about homes. Cypress Point has homes on it. Pasa Chapel has homes on it. I mean, it still works. And those are great golf courses. So I'm not opposed to it either. But I do know that the Sandhills, and I do know that the sites that Mike Kaiser looks for, uh, have those special pieces of land that we all know is very important. Well, it is. The, the land comes first. And how you how you build it and protect it and you know what people's thoughts about economic viability to a certain spot you know you uh and there's another wonderful line that popped into my head about that and said when one plays golf one wants to be alone with nature i can't remember who said that uh, but um, that's when it's the best yes <laughs> that is when it's the best and when you hear the wind blowing and and uh, the the birds overhead at Sand Hills, it can't get any better than that. Well, that's right. It's solemn and peaceful, and uh, it adds to the atmosphere. No, no question about that. Ben, was there, especially thinking back to that Sand Hills era when you and Bill are just getting established and starting to get. The phone is starting to ring after that that fallow period of the late '80s. Was there a and you're Ben Crenshaw, a PGA Tour player, which which would be someone at that era that p- people would know. Your colleagues, you know, Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, Tom Weisskopf, were building golf courses, a very different type of golf courses than than Kapaloo and Sandhills. Was there a learning curve that you went through for the on the develop the developer side, basically? I would imagine you were fielding phone calls that said, oh, here's a Ben Crenshaw course. You know, we, we want this kind of golf, this championship-style golf course that ha- that's going to be 7,200 yards long and par 72, which is not what you and Bill were interested in building at that time. You wanted it to be site-driven. Was there a learning curve that you kind of had to go through to, to, to get to the point where those kind of phone calls were not coming and you were getting the phone calls from the Mike Kaisers and the Ken Backs and th- those type of developers? Oh, yeah. And and all the while, you know, in my infancy, I was, you know, playing the tour. And while, when I was start, you know, it was ironic when I started the tour in 1973, I was an amateur and I played all these great places up east, you know, like Brooklyn, Brookline to me, the country club started my love of history and architecture all in one week yes. when I was 16 years old. Uh that got me to thinking of something other than playing the games. Uh, but, you know, when I always followed professional golf, I knew that Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicholas, Tom Weisskopf were in the business of building courses. And I thought, well, I, I'd like to do that someday. I didn't know when, what or who or how that was going to happen. But I, I said, I want to get involved in this. And that's when you, you, that's when you start learning. You, you like you say, it, it, in that era, real estate was a big part of building golf courses. It was the way to finance the place, 
and keep it keep it moving. That was part of it. Uh, but my mind kept going back to places where I went and studied and and to realize real estate wasn't so much a part of it. So it was different places, different states, different you know, people's greens committees, you name it. Uh, the golf course is the main thing. I've just seen so, so many and have been fascinated by so many places, but I knew that the ones that really kept in my memory are the ones that were a little bit rustic and natural and, uh, places where people had admired, uh, and written about, uh, so much. So, I don't know. You, you you just to have the opportunity to build any course is is a uh, it's it's a proud moment in itself. But there's a lot of gravity in, in to the situation. You, to build a golf course anywhere is 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 a heavy responsibility. I, you just you just remember what you have have seen and studied and somehow you do the best you can. And, and I had a, a like-minded person in Bill Coor to, to keep this thing going all this time. Could it have been, could it have been another developer, another architect that you would have had that same kinship with, or was Bill Coor the perfect guy at the perfect time? Well, he was, no question. And, and I count my lucky stars. Uh, Bill has meant so much. He's a part of me. Uh, and uh, we, we've learned together. Uh, we've have failed together, <laughs> but we were, our desire to learn is always there. Uh, you know, I, I'll say this, it's a little bit like uh, what was asked of, uh, Walter Hagen. He said, Walter, what's, what's, what's the most important golf shot? And he said, the next one. And I think that, that to us sums it up. We're, the next one is vital. It's important. We need to, we need to do the best we can. <laughs> because I can tell you when I watch you and Bill work together and I feel very lucky, Ben, that you have allowed me to be around both of you when you're working. You know, when you're working, you're working, and you don't want to ask a lot of questions. And so I stand away, and I watch you. And it seems like you're communicating without even talking. Uh, is that just the amount of time you've spent together, or do you already know what Bill wants, and Bill knows what you want? Oh, it's, I think it's a combination of all those things. I, I'm thinking uh, we don't, we, I'm always, uh, you know, trying to pry open his brains. Well, what does he think about that? What I know what he's going to do next. You know, it's part of knowing each other, but having, have, having confidence uh, in, in Bill, I always know Bill is going to make the most practical judgment, an artistic judgment. Uh, and, but, you know, in that respect, I, I just consider myself very fortunate that that I, it's, I've been allowed to learn from him. Uh, and so we complement each other that way. But in your case, Jim, we miss seeing you because when you come out, it's just fun. 
<laughs> it's fun. We're all we're all learning, you know, all, as we go, you know. Well, we, but uh, we enjoy talking about it too. And I, that's what people don't understand is that you spend a lot of energy, every green, every approach, every bunker, every tee shot. A lot of energy goes into it, and then somebody says, "Well, this is not a very good hole." Well, if you knew the amount of time I spent on that, you may not say that. Do you feel that? Do you feel that pressure? That like, wait a minute, I spent all my life working on this hole. Yeah. Uh, you know, well, that, there there's tougher situations, uh, and I, I another thing that popped into my head too. I guess what we learned from the British Isles is uh, somebody said a long time ago, he said, they found a situation and made a golf hole out of it. And I mean, you know, there's some quirky things over there that we've seen in our, you say, well, why is that thing there? Well, they just kind of left it alone. They made a golf hole out of it. It's strange that way. Yeah. <laughs> But as you know, the critics of the world, and that's okay to be a critic because we all are. Uh, the critics say, well, why did they leave that there? Why is that bump there? Why is that feature there? And, and sometimes you just say, it works, you leave it. Uh, the, the hand of man stays away from it. And that's a good thing. But other people say, well, geez, you ran out of money or something? <laughs> <laughs> I know it. You know, and it, it is when you when you really think about St. Andrews, you go, I, I can't can't believe that place is like it is because it's totally natural. And I mean, you look at situations like the fourth hole. You play the fourth hole, and there's a little a little hill in front of the green. You go, why in the heck is that thing there? But it comes into play. You would never build it, really, but there it is. And so you just deal with it. Uh, and there's just something about those links courses over there that has fascinated all of us in the business. Uh, but it's, uh, that's the way they are. They, they have, it, things have existed so long over there and, and they just say, well, well, here it is. Here's the presentation. Go, go deal with it. Yeah. If you don't like it, go play somewhere else. You <laughs> <laughs> can always do that. Ben, I know, I know we need to let you go here. Uh, we've spent some time, you know, a lot of time talking about Sandhills because it was such a landmark design and, a, and, and not only that, but a landmark property. No site like that had been developed in the United States since I don't, I don't even know when because there really aren't any comparable sites. But that style of, of architecture hadn't been explored maybe since the early 1900s when, you know, out of necessity. Um, but the fact that that was your second course with Bill, it must've been, uh, it's almost unfathomable how you and, and he could walk into such a magnificent, bewildering, massive site and turn that into a golf course. And I think that's part of the story. But I, what my question was, it must have been bewildering to you on some level. And I've heard Bill say when asked, you know, that must have been so fun to build Sandhills. And he's just responded, no, it was like stressful and it was hard work because we knew we couldn't mess it up. Have you ever, have you ever had that experience on another golf course or another site 
uh, that replicated what you felt when you were working at Sandhills? You know, um, Sandhills was difficult because, you know, Bill and I knew that we would maybe never get a site like that ever. And it's so natural, so rugged, and you wanted it to, to, to play right, feel right, and be what it is. And that's difficult. And it took repeated visits before we even started building it to plan it. Uh, so we did have, suppose, somewhat the luxury of time and, and visits. But, you know, there's other sites where, wow, we this is really something. We're... Uh, well, the St. Lucia golf course that we just opened is one of those sites where you've got it, you know, a, a coastline property like this, um, these days is really difficult to find and to allow being built. Uh, uh, there's others too, but those two stand out in mind, uh, in, in other words, it's, it's pressure to say we, we better try to get this right. <laughs> that's and that's that's a heavy burden. At this point in your career, do you do you prefer to work a site like Sandhills, where so much is already on the ground, or do you have you gotten better? And do you also relish doing something like MacArthur, where you have a flat piece of land and everything has to be created? Everything comes from the mind. Well, it's, it's, it's a different kind of fun, let's say. Uh, obviously, it's it's wonderful to have a site that you don't have to mess with too much. There's no question about that. Then hopefully you can look back at a, a site like the MacArthur. We're really proud of MacArthur. There's some things fell into place there. We were very proud of our workers there. And very proud of the club that let us do it. Uh, wonderful people to work for. Uh, and a talented superintendent as well. So, uh, And hopefully we've in- induced a couple of different holes there that you don't see in, in Florida. Uh, it's one par three that's partially blind into the green. I love that Which hole. is interesting. That's a great <laughs> hole. It's the... The fun fourth. hole. Yeah. Fifth hole. Fifth hole. Yeah, the fifth yeah. fifth hole. It's there's sort of like a ridge that blocks the green with a little ramp that goes down yeah. onto it. Yeah, you, you won't see that many times many nope. times in Florida. <laughs> so I don't I know, we had we had fun with it. I was just across the street at Lob Lolly Ben, so I had a, a chance to go over to MacArthur uh, several times. Uh Peter Lund and the Murphy yes. people uh, all welcomed me over there. Uh, you are absolutely right. You created some stuff in Florida that nobody else will get to see. Um, and I know that you had to draw inspiration going back to the Lynx lands to, to get that feel and that look. Uh, and sometimes when you look out over the MacArthur landscape, you think it had always been there. Pretty good. It's a, it's a nice, wonderful piece of land. I like it. Uh, it's a nice, lonely piece of land. There's not anything around it. It's natural. It's over there. It's close by, but it has a nice private feel about it. It's good. And, uh, it's good. As I, as I say, it was really fun to work for those people. They could not have been greater to us. 
Yeah. I don't even know him that well, and I felt like I knew him for 100 years, Ben. <laughs> well, that's right. The Reyes brothers are just remarkable people, but they just let us work, and we were – it's just it was really fun to work there. Well, Ben, I know you have some exciting projects coming up. You said, as Walter Hagen said, what's the – the best what's the most important shot in golf and he said the next one and that's the same with you and uh I, i'm thrilled to be able to talk to you and thrilled for you and ben and all the success you've had and i know you've got a, a lot of great design and projects and prospects ahead of you well i appreciate it we'll be busy next year uh, we'll, be, we'll be working on three or four courses and um uh, uh, we're, we're only too happy that people still want to build clubs and, and uh, put them together. Uh, we're, we're very fortunate. Uh, but it's always it's great to know that people like Jim are doing such good work, and he's, he's very, very good. And uh, I know that he will please people wherever he goes. It's always good to talk with him and see him. We miss seeing you. Thank you, Ben. I appreciate that. Uh, maybe I'll show up at your favorite Mexican food restaurant in Austin again, and uh, we'll, we'll uh, enjoy that time there because we had a lot of fun that night. <laughs> let, let me tell you, I could not do without Mexican food. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> <laughs> what a could great, not night. Do it. <laughs> great well, you, night. You both live in a good place for that. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. There's not, doesn't exist here. I miss it. I'm a Colorado boy, and I, I miss that green chili. <laughs> ben, it's, a pleasure, it's a pleasure to talk with you both. It's been fun. Thank you, Ben. Thank you for your time today. I was a little stomach queasy knowing I was going to get to talk to you again because you know – I enjoy my time with you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it, Jim. Always good to talk to you. And uh, y'all y'all have a great Christmas, okay? You Merry too, Christmas Ben. to you and your family, Ben. Thank y'all. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Okay, Jim. Ben, <laughs> ben Crenshaw seemed very happy to be talking to you i think there's uh i think we might be entering a phase where it, it, it's core crenshaw and urbina as a design <laughs> firm <laughs> he's, he's ready to he's ready for you to join up <laughs> thank you for that derek uh, uh i i have no idea uh, wh why that transpired but uh I, i've told you a thousand times derek when i grow up I want to be like Bill Coor and Ben Crenshaw. So <laughs> maybe he realized that was the truth. That and he realized I liked him a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, as as we have said, there's few people in golf who are more widely liked and respected than than Ben Crenshaw. I mean, he's oh, in a class yeah. of his own. And hopefully hopefully everybody who listens to this if they didn't already know, they could feel that. I mean, he's such a yes. such a great spirit and a generous spirit, and loath to kind of take any credit, much credit for what they do. Always looking to kind of pay it forward, and use an opportunity to, uh, when somebody compliments him or mentions something, to to bring something else or somebody else into the conversation and share yes. uh, share that perspective and, and share that spotlight and that's just yes. that's just who he is and and yet he's the he's a two-time masters champion and designer of some of the, like the greatest golf courses that have ever been built uh Great. so and always ready to shove it off 
and and don't talk about me let's talk about you yes and you know in the world of architecture as ron witten once said uh, architects have a, the biggest egos in the world uh ben crenshaw bill core ben crenshaw specifically because he was our guest today says you know let's talk about you derek let's talk about you jim and and we're trying to interview ben and isn't that ironic how he takes the word the letter i uh, out of every sentence it's not i it's we it's you it's not ben pretty yeah. damn cool yeah you know, just to kind of follow up on on a topic that was broached but we didn't really get a chance to follow through i thought he said something really interesting and um maybe the listeners will have picked up on this too he said that early in their careers he and bill's careers the greens that they built tended to be a little more robust have a little more contour um and then I think the implication is as they uh, went on later in their careers, they were a little more tame. And he said, and he said, I don't know why that was. Um, but he talked about some, some, some different types of inspirations like, like uh, McKinsey and Maxwell. The first thing I would say to that is green speeds obviously have something to do with that. And as yeah. the years go by, you know, the green speeds that you can attain in, in 2015 and, and 2023 are much different than was regular in uh, in, in twenty or nineteen ninety five and the late nineties. You know, there's been a, a lot of jumps in agronomics and greenkeeping that have enabled higher speeds for more courses on a more regular basis. Now, I remember having a conversation uh, recently with Bill Coro at at Wicker Point, their new course in Alabama, and I noticed some of the the greens there were were fairly modest there wasn't a lot of you know the the big rolling contour like you see on some of the other other courses and i asked him about it if that was purposeful and he said well it's it's so important that you understand how the greens are going to be maintained and what the client wants and it i think the the that club happened to want faster greens so obviously the architect has to take that into consideration and make contours that are interesting still but match up with the the agronomical practices so it's it's a it's a balance and it's a union of of interests uh, on how to design greens and and that would be i think more and more of a factor as their careers uh went forward and you know you know is better than anybody jim members of a club like fast greens so love them. you love have them. to I, I don't know you could you could how do you we've talked about this before but like you have to it's a concession uh, that's hard to make, I know, but you have to at some point. And the green I brought up at the Sandhills, we we spent a lot of time at the Sandhills. Uh, I'm sorry that we did in a way because I love Sandhills and Sandhills was a turning point in architecture, but I had to keep going back to the Sandhills. And if anybody's ever seen the second green at the Sandhills, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about. That was a very, very dramatic green. And he commented on it where they got the inspiration from and I don't know that I'll ever see a green like the second hole at the Sandhills, the second green at the Sandhills, ever designed by Bill and Ben again. I don't know why. It's very dramatic. It's fun to play. But as you said, you caught on to it quickly. I hope the listeners did too, that times have changed. And the second green at the Sandhills, whether it shows up again in, in the repertoire of Corin Crenshaw, remains to be seen. But wow, what a green. Yeah, yeah. He, he made a, a, another comment, a, a phrase that has 
also I've been I was thinking about immediately. I just thought it was such an interesting way to to describe something. He he mentioned uh, and I forget which screen it was, but he said or something that he liked. Uh, he called it interconnected humps. And yeah. I just thought I've never heard that phrase before, but that's like a, he would see certain greens. And then we talked about uh, Perry Maxwell greens. Oh, yeah. 14th green at Augusta is a Perry Maxwell green. Absolutely. And we talked about the eight at Prairie Dunes and, and uh, you know, they're uh, like the, the conjoined green at, at um, Old Town Club. Uh, 17 yes. and eight, you know, like there's some, some interconnected humps on that. Um, yes. I was going to, so let me, I'll, I'll flip it over to you. Maxwell has a certain character in, in many of the greens that, that he designed that have been, I think, Love re, been re, lovingly returned to form over the last yes. couple of decades. So you can kind of see those, those little knobs and, and the roll offs and things like that. Yes. You yes. are the consulting architect at three different Alistair McKenzie clubs and, and yes. worked uh, quite extensively at the Valley club of Montecito as well. Yes. Um, yes. Do you, and we touched on this a little bit, Ben mentioned it, but do you see the same type of characteristic that unifies McKenzie's greens that yes. you, you see that is common thread in Maxwell greens? Yes, I do. And uh, the, it's the little bumps. It's the little ground feeders. It's the ground game that, and uh, when you look at the second, a green at Pasa Tempo. It's got a little bit of a contour right in front that McKenzie uses to feed the ball from right to left. And nobody, nobody was looking at those little ground contours in front of the green when the ball was up touching the stratosphere. But when you look at the game on the ground, those features that Maxwell implored Old Town Golf Club, uh, uh, Prairie Dunes, uh, some of the other uh, greens that uh, Perry Maxwell was involved with at Crystal Downs, you know, that's how McKenzie and, and Barry Maxwell got together at Crystal Downs. And so the ground gains and those little humps and bumps, I cherish, I love. They get glossed over. They get muted on a game that's played in the air above the stratosphere. But Ben, Bill, myself, some other architects also enjoy those little bumps and, and, and those little features that made those greens so good as Ben described on the eighth at Prairie Dunes, as the second green does at Sand Hills. You know, you start getting me talking about these little bumps, and I could go, I could go <laughs> nuts because they're only, as Dave Axlin said, it's four feet or it's four inches, and it's those little four-inch bumps, those little five-inch bumps that McKenzie and Maxwell uh, did that I think Ben embraced, Bill embraced a long time ago, before any architects embraced them. And that's the things I like about who are in trend shop designs. I seek them out every day, every time I get a chance. It's those little things, Derek, and I think they don't show up in a magazine cover, and so people don't cherish them as much as I do, that you do. And 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 maybe, and maybe uh, other architects as Bill and Ben uh, if they ever retire, I doubt they will, Derek. If they ever retire, we'll continue that same uh, uh, love affair with the little bumps, the little feeders, the little things that McKenzie and Maxwell did. They're awesome. They're beautiful. It's the game the way it was begun. Mm -hmm. You just, as we know, and you, we've mentioned, uh, completed the renovation of the first nine at, at Pasa Tiempo. Yes. Rebuilding those greens. Are, are the greens at Pasa Tiempo have always been considered a, one of the great sets of greens in golf? Are, no is doubt. there anything, what was McKinsey doing there that stands out from his green design that, that 
differentiates Pasa from his other designs? Uh, using the land, using the uh, you know the steepness of the land, and using these contours, these these undulation contours to eat up that land and that elevation. A lot of people don't know this that the eighth green of Pasa Temple is almost eight feet of fall from from uh, uh, from back to front. And uh, how do you eat up that in a topography? You use contours, you, and you lose use different levels. The same as the 18th green, the same as the 16th green Apostle Temple. And so, what I am enjoying is recapturing those levels that we see in those 29 and 30 and 31 photos. And that's what you grasp from touching and feeling and walking and spending more than just what does it take? 10 minutes a hole to play, Derek? You play a hole, you hit the shot. You hit a bunker shot, you go up, mark the ball, you make yeah. a putt. 10, 10 to 15 minutes, minutes, yeah. And you move on? Yeah. I get to spend four and five days <laughs> on the same green that somebody spent 15 minutes on. And I hope that – I don't want to – I'm not asking for slow play, Derek. I'm just saying you can't grasp but what – a Coor and Crenshaw green or a Perry Maxwell green or an Alistair McGenzie green really gives you in 15 minutes. It's longer than that. And if you walked around them for five and six days like I do, like Coor and Crenshaw do, you begin to understand these greens are way more intricate than people give them credit for. If you just think about that concept of benching a green or, or placing a green onto a, a, a slope with the grade that falls eight feet from the back of the green to the front. Correct. That's a, to make that green work takes a lot of skill, a lot of talent to make that work. I remember ha having a conversation with Dave Axland about that. Um, when he was able to figure that out, he felt, he said he became a much better architect. He, oh, yeah. he studied the second green at Prairie Dunes, which is benched into a hill. It's a par three. And it says the same feature. It falls. And you can't just put – you can't make a green that just has 8% or more, whatever the grade would be for that Agreed. slope. You have to find ways to contour it so it gradually cascades down. And he used the same thing that he learned at Prairie Dunes at the second hole at Colorado Golf Club, which is a very yeah. similar par three benched into a hill. Um, and, and you're saying that PASA is the same thing. And these architects had it, you know, they probably worked at it, but they had it figured out in 1929 when PASA Tiempo was built. And I used to, I used to not like a green that had, a, a, had a, a, an in, uh, it's just going to be hard to explain without a, a diagram, but that a green that had a, a protrusion of, of a mound coming into the green at certain points during the, the layout of the green. And what I figured out on the eighth green Apostle Temple was that McKenzie uh, bumped that bump into the green so that he could slow down and hold up mm -hmm. the contour so that it didn't all just fall down in one uh, straight grade, that that contour bulging in to the green held up the green, and you, it would be masking the topography of eight feet by that little bulge shooting into the green. And he did that on eight, and he did that on three, and he did that on two, several of the greens, four. He bumps in a bulge that holds up the land, and you don't even think about that mm -hmm. today. Yeah. And you and you go to Prairie Dunes, and he bumps, uh, Perry Maxwell puts in an inside roll 
We call them uh, famous Maxwell inside rolls. He puts in those inside rolls to hold up that land so that that green, even though it's fighting a big contour, has pinning placements on it. Brilliant, brilliant designs. And so just hang around on a green, Derek, for two or three or four days if they'll let you without throwing you off for loitering. <laughs> and you'll see that stuff come to, come to a three-dimension in your mind and you think, those sons of bucks are pretty damn smart. Yeah, they had to figure it out just on the, you know, in the field on the fly, I'm imagining. Right. You know, this was the right. early generation of architecture. That eighth green at Pasa is I haven't seen the what you did with it, but that was a wild son it. of a gun. You, you wait till you see it. It is <laughs> it is oh. That guy was brilliant, man. Yeah. And, and a couple of members came up to me and said, uh, this looks pretty good, uh, Jim, you did a good job." And I said, it ain't me, man. It ain't me. It's Mackenzie's drawings. It's Mackenzie's aerials. It's Mackenzie's ground photos that you could see. And we just had to bring it back and tear down all that sand to get it back to that, the sand buildup. And that's the same thing that Bill fell in love with on the greens at Augusta, the 14th green, for example. It's the things that they fell in love with uh, uh, at Sand Hills, creating those contours. And I wanted to ask, Derek, thank you for bringing that up about the greens. I wanted to ask Ben if the routing, because he knows that the routing is the most important thing. Uh, this would be, be a question for all the listeners. Can a bad routing or a good routing be tore down or, or improved by a great set of greens? Could you forgive them for a bad routing if your greens were entertaining, all 18 of them, Derek? I can think of courses that... I think are excellent simply because they have a great set of greens. Perfect. That that's that's my opinion. Yeah. Now, would would a poor routing uh preclude that course from being beloved even more probably. But yeah. um another way to put that is would you rather play a a golf course with a great routing and a great emotional setting with you know, average, averagely interesting greens or not, not Eight that interesting greens. greens. Yeah. Like Ben said, you know, he, <laughs> the worst thing for him was just a, a golf course with pretty flat greens. Or would you rather play a, a compromised routing with really interesting greens that required a lot of, a lot of skill and imagination and recoveries and putting? I want them both, Derek. I want them both. Well, that's the great courses do both. And Corn <laughs> Crenshaw's courses do both. I'd wonder what the, I haven't played every course. I wonder what the the their least interesting set of greens is. Uh, it's a Good but question. everything. But you don't you wouldn't notice them as much because everything else is usually so on point. The strategies, the the, the, the options off the tee, the environment that they're in. Everything. Yeah. And and when Bill uh, when Ben says that Brookline was his inspiration. Uh, you look at that routing and you look at those greens and you look at the flow of that golf course, you know, at an early age, Ben said, Brookline, why is this so important? Why is this so different? Uh, and then he so falls in love with it. He comes back and he's a Ryder cup champion at Brookline. How funny that big circle comes back around to a place you've begun your love affair with architecture, how lucky Ben was to be a part of it as not only an architectural bug, geek so to speak but also as a player at the highest level that's unbelievable Derek. unbelievable yeah 
It all, yeah, I think for Ben, it all started at Brookline, that that when he was uh, a, a teenager, going up there, and the light bulb went on, you know. And and just to kind of finish up, this kind of came up, you know, PGA Tour players and people who are at that level of golf, they obviously love golf. You know, they Agreed. work at it very hard, but Agreed. very few of them love golf courses. And Ben Crenshaw is rare in his field as a professional golfer because he loved golf courses from an early age. And a lot of it had to do with the history. He was at, he loved to read about the history of golf, which a, a lot of young tour players, a lot of young people now don't care about history they don't care about what happened before they were born but he did and that drove him to be curious about the courses that he played on they weren't just places you know uh, obstacle fields to be deconstructed and to figure out how to shoot to 68 on they were they were living breathing things that had a history into them and embodied something more than just a the host of the pga tour event that week so that's always set him apart and it's obviously a huge part of why Corn Crenshaw's overall of architecture is so Agreed. interesting and so Agreed. admired and so important and will become already are historic in themselves. They're the perfect couple, Derek. They're the perfect couple. Uh, a, a tour player, as you said, who, who uh, championed uh, a great play, uh, Harvey Penick, uh, the book, uh, the swing, the style, uh, a mentor, uh, Harvey Penick mentor. But then Ben flips it almost instantly to talk about uh, Royal Litham and St. Anne when the first chance he got to go play on Lynx Golf and said, why is this so different? And why is this so intricate? And why is this so fun? So the highest caliber of golfer and the highest caliber of architecture is wrapped in into Ben's brain. And you could see why I could hang out with him forever and ever and just go, I would just, I carry his briefcase, Derek. <laughs> well, I carry his briefcase. You have an open invitation, not necessarily carry his briefcase, but uh, join <laughs> join them for a, a, a walk around and a sandwich. You know, at at lunch, <laughs> exactly. Bill will eat half a sandwich, and <laughs> you and you could just hang out with him. And you could see why we're lucky, Derek, to have a chance to speak with Ben Crenshaw of the world, the Bill Coors of the world. Because even though it's about them, it's them telling you about others, the superintendents of the world. We talked about Ken Nice. If it wasn't for Ken Nice, uh, Ben and Bill know that their, their, their golf courses in Bandon wouldn't be as good as they are. It's that always love affair of Ben and Bill about the other people that help them, the shapers, the on-site design guys, the superintendents. Always deflecting, always deflecting instead of talking about Bill and Ben. That's a pretty rare thing in golf architecture. Well, I hope everybody got a, a sense of, of what makes Bill and Ben so attractive and why their Agreed. phone is always ringing and Bill's always, always flying around the world to look at sites uh, and, and why people just want to be around them and work with them, whether they're shapers or superintendents or members or developers. They're, you just want to be around. They're in a class by themselves. They're the best. They're a class by themselves. <laughs> well, that was fun, fun, Jim. Um, Thank you, Derek. We can, uh, yeah, that was a that was a good get on your part. So thanks for lining up Ben Crenshaw for us. And 
the next conversations we have with him will hopefully be in person out on the golf course somewhere. Agreed. Thank you, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thank you, Jim. Everybody, thanks for listening. <laughs>